Please stand for the reading of God's word. Oh, you're already standing. Okay, never mind. I had that in my notes, so. Okay, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thank you, Tim and Tara and TJ. We're so thankful for your family, for your ministry among us, and that middle candle being lit here on Christmas Eve. You know, a lot of people boast, and a lot of people make claims, and I'd like us to focus tonight on the, the most significant claim that could possibly be made, the most significant claim, I think, in all Scripture, and that is verse 14 of John's prologue, which was just read. Listen again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. You say it would be a probably silly game to play, but if somebody put you on the spot, say if you had to pick one verse of the Bible that was jam-packed with meaning, uh, something that would alter your very life, alter all history, uh, something that would force you to really grapple down to the core of what it means to be human and what it means to exist. I think you could pick John chapter 1 and verse 14. Because you see the opening of John's gospel, right, that we're told that the way he's using the word word, it's the animating principle of the world. He says the word was God. And then in verse 14 he says the word became flesh. So what a striking claim that God came among us as a person. You see, friends, that this would be so incredibly offensive to any first hearer of this, you know, probably in oral reading, you know, low literacy rates, that this gospel would have been rolled out on the scroll. You could imagine them sitting there, all the Jews, right? And they hear this and they say, well, God came to exist as a man. Say, any Jewish ear would have been highly offended. They know their own Bible well, going back to the Exodus, right? Nobody can see God, or maybe the example of Isaiah some 700 years before who gets a glimpse of God up high, and he falls on his face, and he says, well, I'm a ruined man, and he says, I'm an unclean, ruined man. Every Jew know it's impossible to see God, let alone God come to be as a person. Say, equally as offensive, no doubt, first hearers probably Jewish, equally as offensive as it made its way out of the synagogue and it landed on the, the Greek ear. 
Say the Greek ear would have found it also a stumbling block, something offensive. I say, well, why, why is that the case? Say the Greeks are steeped in the kind of Platonism that said that the bodies were evil, right? You open up your introductory philosophy textbook, you say the ancient Greeks are very anti-material, they're very anti-body. The body was the bad thing. All the stuff is what limits us. It's what uh, causes all of our problems is stuff. You need to liberate from the Bible the stuff that's real, the soul. So the Greek would have been highly offended. God can't come to be as a person. And yet that's exactly what John's saying. And for those of you tonight, very skeptical, Christmas Eve, always have non-believers here, and, and especially on Christmas Eve, glad you're here. Really want you to think about that verse. There's a pronoun there that ought to cause you pause. Uh, it's we. And then attach the verb seen. Every time that this verb is used, right, it means to actually lay eyes on, you say, well, this would be a very strange... It's as if John here, the writer, is claiming eyewitness testimony. I've seen this. I've laid eyes on this guy. And some of us here tonight, you've been listening to the trajectory of our culture, right? The Bible is all uh, made up after the fact, or Constantine kind of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, threw it all together in the fourth century. Say, no, we have first century documents making a striking claim. John and his community laid eyes on this figure. So may there be no doubt about it. The greatest claim in the world is that God would come to exist as a person, offensive to the Jew, mind-boggling and offensive to the Greek, and quite frankly, a stumbling block to those of us who are moderns. And not only that, say, what kind of guy did he come down as? Say, if you were God and you were to appear as a man, you'd say, well, who would you go? You'd say, well, somebody like Tom Brady. You know, that's who God would be. Say, well... He comes in the form of an unassuming carpenter. Somebody you line up ten guys and you got to pick them out. You say, he was just like every man. A carpenter right there for all to see. Say, God says, through the man Jesus, I've made myself known. And you know that for the the reason, then that next key word, right, glory, that God's glory, the great uh, quest of Moses, right, God, show me your glory. What John's saying is God's presence is evident in the person of Jesus. How do you know if God exists? It's not just a, a, a thought idea from philosophers or theologians. They say, well, there's been many a preacher up there, and they thunder from their pulpit, and they talk a lot about God. How do we know that God's real? So he came down as a person, a person who interacted, a person who moved people and touched their lives, and a person who his followers said is raised and he intercedes. And you ask any Christian, they'll say, well, I have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. You know, think about this another way, uh, by way of illustration. You know, I have an uncle, Uncle Tommy. My Uncle Tommy lives in, in Fort Lauderdale. Nobody here has met my Uncle Tommy. And you could say, well, what, what must he be like? And some of you, if you're in the rationalist school, I say, well, we know that his name is Thomas, probably, and that he's from South Florida. And you say, well, that's very good rational thinking. That's as far as your reason can get you on something like that, right? Only that what you uh, can know from the bare facts. It's hardly saying, well, we know what he's like. Say others, you might say, well, he must be a rather unusual person if he's Austin's uncle and he's a relative. You say, well, that's... Uh, uh, but that, that's, that's deduction, isn't it? 
Uh, that's uh, not really guaranteed. That's what we call deduction. Now, you might say, well, what about imagining? A lot of people say, well, I can kind of, you know, what, let's just think of what his Uncle Tommy must be like. Or maybe, maybe a little bit better. My sister's here tonight. She knows my Uncle Tommy. Maybe you could ask her. Say, all those would be really inadequate. There'd be a better way. Uh, that is, if my Uncle Tommy was here tonight, which he's not, which would have made for a better illustration. But you see, uh, if my Uncle Tommy, you say, there he is. That's what he's like. He's here. That's Austin's uncle. He's not far off. See, that's what John's saying. All of us in our hearts come into the world. We, we know there's a God out there. Say, 99% of all people who've lived, the anthropologists will tell you, know that there's a God. Say we didn't just pop into existence. Earliest drawings on caves are of God. Say we have this inner sense that there's a God. But what's he like? How do we know? Well, he's come in Jesus to live among us, to show us his glory. And I just, I know, shorter sermon here tonight with the children. But these wonderful two words, if I can. So what a claim. God came to exist as a man. And then this little phrase from verse 14 again, right? That this Jesus, this uh, son of God who came to be, who was witnessed in history, is full of grace and truth. I've been playing around a lot in my mind with those two words. We'll kind of take them in turn. Think about the importance of truth and the importance of grace. So first, truth. Jesus being full of truth. We have a very strange relationship with truth. If you think about it, truth is both very liberating and also very painful. Uh, you know, maybe a good illustration of this would be a medical diagnosis. You say, if you have a serious illness going on and you go to see your, your physician, uh, you, you want the truth. You say, I really want to know what's happening here. They say, well, Austin, it's pancreatic cancer. You say, that's extremely painful. You see, truth has this way about it. Say, we know that it's, uh, you know, it's something that we all long for. We, we need what, what is truthful. We need that at crucial moments in our life, right? The most important things in our life, we need truth. But I also realize that truth can be scary. And what our culture's done, right? We say, well, we want to relativize everything. But I hope you see relativism doesn't work on the big questions of life. You say, I don't want to go into my doctor and say, well, you know, we have no idea what in the world is wrong with you. And it could be an equal number of things. We have no idea how to tr treat you. And by the way, if I picked one answer, I would feel that I'd be narrowing things uh, in, a, in a way that would be snobby. You say, that'd be a silly thing to say. We don't want relativism at the crucial moments of life. What we want for is truth. And you see, when there's truth, and we say we long for truth, why we have a funny relationship with it is because it takes us into the realm of absolutes and takes us into the realm of those truths demanding a response. That if there are ultimate truths, then it means that we should submit to them and that I'm not my own source of truth, as is popular these days. I can't go around declaring my own truth or saying that I embody truth or whatever it would be, but rather to say, if there really are these kind of truths, then it demands a response, and I am to come underneath that and live by it. And that's very hard for us. And I think by, in verse 10, you say, it's a really, it's a really sad line. You think about this. You say, wouldn't it be wonderful if there's a God out there who made everything and he came to exist as a person that'd be so extraordinary? Wouldn't everybody love that? Wouldn't everybody love this Jesus? But look at verse 10. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. See, I think that's why people oftentimes really hate Jesus. They say, well, he stands for something. He says he is the truth. And if that's the case, then I've 
got to deal with that absolute. And quite frankly, I say, no, I want to be my own absolute. And you see, we have this funny relationship that I long for truth. I know that I need it, but I also, in, in my pride, don't always want to submit to it. You say one further move here about truth. You know, we now live in what is a period of history that is called postmodernism. You say, really, it's a response to modernism. That modernism is the, the age of scientific enlightenment and rationalism. And what happened there is we said, well, we need to arrive at all these truths using human faculties. And you know what happened to that movement, really, were the two world wars. That very much so that uh, modernism and rationalism were in vogue until the 1900s when we said, well, you know what? Look at where human sophistry has gotten us, all this bloodshed. And what we've moved to is say, well, why would one person have a view of truth rather than the other? Why is this person's rules better than this person's rules? After all, we're each uh, just our own subjects moving through the world. And so what we've said, we've landed in this position saying, well, we, we don't want any kind of a truth. We each make it up. So what gives... And here's what gives, and, and I hope that this is meaningful to you, that the Bible would teach, and those, I should say, John and his followers who knew Jesus made this claim. They said Jesus didn't come merely to teach the truth, though he did do that, though he does teach truthful things. So that would be a fascinating enough claim in itself. What actually they say is that Jesus embodies truth that a relationship with Jesus is the source of all true living. That if you yoke yourself to him and you listen to his voice and you become more like him, that that is the most truthful and the life that is most flourishing, that's the best of all lives to live. You see how that's different. You've got all these competing claims. Well, let's each of us make up our truths. Let's go to the other religions, and here's the set of their truths. It's not Jesus comes into that debate and says, well, here are the list of rules that I say. No, it's a much bigger claim than that, right? That Jesus is full of truth itself, not just that he makes truthful claims, but that he is the truth. And you look at his life, isn't it, isn't it amazing that no matter what you seem to be dealing with in life, if you look on Jesus, he demonstrates that in perfect balance. You say you're feeling a bit down and you need some courage. There's a lens of Jesus where you say he's a man of tremendous courage. You say, well, Lord, what I'm going through now, I really need wisdom. And you look to Jesus and he's full of wisdom. And you go and you say, well, I want to know what is a beautiful life to live. What is, a, what is a, a really nice and a kind life and a beautiful life to live? And you look at Jesus and he pierces us that way. Wisdom, beauty, courage. It's all embodied in, in him in an illustration. In a life lived in history. Preserved for us in God's word. Making an impact on us. You see the difference there. So it's very hard to talk about those things if you think about it. Say, what is a beautiful life? We all know what beauty is. Very hard to explain in a lecture. But if you have an illustration of it, you're able to say, oh, there it is. And Jesus embodies all this. And one more move on this that I'd like you to think about. You talk about Christians. You know, some of you, you know, are you, are you one of those born again type? And you'll hear you talk to the born-again type, which we are happily here at Providence, the born-again type, because Jesus says you must be born again. We're the born-again type. And if you talk to, I hope, any member of, member of Providence Church, they'll say, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so, well, that's a weird phrase. What do people mean by a personal relationship with Jesus? It's like other relationships, what it means is that Jesus is in my, I'm in him and he's in me. And so when I go through life, 
uh, whether, it, whether it be my thought life or the trials or my speech or the things that I look at, say, I want the Lord Jesus navigating each part of my life in the same way any other relationship I have. It's a part of who I am, but for the Christian, Jesus is so much a part of our life. He's an ever-present guide. He's filtering my thoughts. When I sin, I, I confess to him. He puts me back on the right track. That's what we mean by this, but make no mistake about it, right? Truth is in the person of Jesus. We long for truth. We don't want a set of rules. We need an illustration of all that is good and right and true and beautiful, and that is embodied in the person of Jesus. Now, finally here, how about that other word, grace? You see, grace and truth at one level can be in conflict because if you say, if, if here are the, the absolutes in life, I don't always get it right. I'm aware of the right things to do, but I always fall short. You know, the great illustration of this, working enough on college campuses, you know, you talk to some young, you know, sophomore, and I'm talking about these categories, and I'll say something, well, how would you feel if your whole life was a film for everybody to view? I say, well, I don't want that to be the case. You know, I don't even want my thoughts from this last week to be published in the paper. I say, what does that tell you? It should tell you that you're aware of a moral standard and that you don't measure up to it. You're aware of truths to live by. You're aware of what is good and right. And because of our own impulses, we don't always get it right. What are we going to do with a God who's truthful? Not only truthful, but who's truth in itself. Thank goodness, friends, that this same God who embodies the absolutes and the truths deals graciously with sinners. Again, you hear very little else tonight that God is not uh, up there distant um, as the accuser, but rather he says, I deal graciously with sinners. I don't know where you're at tonight. You're wrestling things that you did a long time ago, things that, that you did this year, maybe something you said to somebody sitting in your aisle, uh, times you were quick with them, times that you cursed God, used your body in a way that you knew didn't honor God. You say, well, there's wonderful news at Christmas that there's a Jesus who's full of grace, that he deals graciously with sinners. And I hope tonight, if you're not a Christian, you think about these things and you entrust yourself to this Jesus to say, I do, I need grace. It's a hard world out there. A lot of sad and disappointing things. I know I need there to be one. Could it be that God came down in the person of Jesus to demonstrate what he's like, and what he's like is that he deals graciously with us and that he's full of truth? Christian, tonight, this celebration of the incarnation, I pray that we apprehend this truth deep in our hearts that we behold the very presence of God, that we do have a personal relationship with Jesus, that again, tonight it goes with us all of our lives, that as we continue tomorrow, Christmas and beyond, that he's steering us and convicting us and comforting us, and above all, illustrating us the kind of life that is worth living. And again, to the non-Christian, one more time, to think about this claim. Say, a wonderful thing to do tonight or, you know, sometime at the New Year. Say, a very modest, uh, let's make a very modest goal if you're not a Christian. Why don't you read John's Gospel? It's a short little biography of Jesus. Think about that major claim. Could it be? Do you need truth in your life? A place to be in the end? Somebody who meets you and deals with you graciously and welcomes you in as you surrender your life to him? I pray you see that in Jesus and I pray you see why 
why Christians make such a big deal about Christmas. So we'll now uh, pray and then sing our final two hymns, these very famous hymns. But friend, be comforted by the fact in Jesus, God's glory is there, he's full of grace and truth, and that he will be with us until he calls us home to, for us to be with him. So Ben, if you'd come back up and I'll pray. Lord, I do think about this staggering claim that the word, the very one who spoke creation into existence, came in the form of a person. May we not be so snobbish as to think that this was easy to understand back when this was written, that uh, now somehow we're more offended by it than the first audience was, but rather to see it's an extraordinary claim that God came to exist as a person, a kind of everyman. And that as we look on the life of Jesus, that we would see truth and grace. That the very place to plant our feet, the anchor that we all need in these turbulent, turbulent times, that we would find those in a personal relationship with Jesus. And Lord, just when we see that big uh, arm of truth, the absolutes to which we must submit as we see those entering in, we see that other wonderful word, grace. That you deal, deal graciously with sinners. You're merciful and we, we don't deserve your kindness to us, Lord. And I pray that each heart tonight, you, we, you'd be back on the throne, back on the throne of the heart of the Christian. And for those who are not Christians or have drifted, that they surrender to you. May Jesus be honored for his sake, we pray. Amen.